from miry clay to the firm rock. Psalm chapter 40. In Psalm chapter 40, David bears witness to what God has done in the past. How he has delivered David from the miry clay and placed his feet upon a firm rock. However, now new evils have come against David. His sins are suffocating him, and his enemies are in pursuit of him. This psalmist once again needs God's forgiveness. Once again, David needs freedom from those who wish him evil. He describes himself as poor and needy, and he's eagerly calling upon the Lord to deliver him. And as we examine Psalm 40, we're going to see how God removed David from the miry clay and placed his feet upon the firm rock. And God can do the same for you. We're going to begin in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, with an acknowledgement of dealings, an acknowledgement of dealings. Verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He has set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He's put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and will trust in the Lord. David begins here with a confession of his past experience. He says he waited patiently, and as he waited patiently, God did something. God grew his faith. Have you ever considered that when God has you in a holding pattern, He has you there for a purpose, and that purpose is to grow us? You know, we are by nature an impatient people. We want what we want, and we want it now. Better yet, we want it yesterday. We don't want to wait. And when we're told what we can't do or when we can't do something, we, we just uh, fume at that because we are an impatient people. Yet God tells us to wait patiently. Sit there, stay there, until I tell you to move. And knowing that he's going to use this time to grow your faith. That's why in Luke 11 verse 9, Jesus says, listen, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. When God hears, he'll act. And that's exactly what he did. He rescued David from the pit of destruction. Now the pit is often a metaphor for death. And as that, the miry clay may also represent the death or the abode of the dead. The idea that David is expressing here is that he's living like a dead man, okay? He's on the run for his life, likely during the time of Absalom's rebellion, and uh, David is basically says, I'm, I'm, I'm a dead man. My life is done. My life is over. There is nothing left for me. Uh, my, my sin is suffocating me. My enemies are pursuing me. The all kinds of evils are against me. I need God's deliverance. But you know, God didn't merely rescue David from death. He picks him up and sets his feet upon a rock, literally establishes his step. He provides refuge. He provides stability. He su uh, su uh, supplies security. You see, for David, he wasn't looking to be saved from something. He was be looking to being saved for something. And you know, believer, when Christ rescued you and I from sin, He just didn't save us from sin. He saved us for Himself. He saved us, He rescued us for Himself. 
And that's why he secures us and establishes us in him. He is our rock. Now, as a result of God's work, David has a new song. The song is new because the work of God is new in his life. Christian, do you think about that times that every, every time that God does something new in your life, you should have a song. You should have a reason for rejoicing because he's done something new. You say, well, there's nothing new under the sun. That's right, but you know what? The mercies of God are new every day because the mercies of God don't originate under the sun. They originate in heaven. His song is a song of gratitude. Praise to God for the rescue he has received. You know, when we think about praise, we think about worship. And worship in the Bible is usually a corporate event. But as David praises God, he's not here in a position in, in a corporate sense. We've seen this before in other Psalms that many times when David's praising God, when David's in a time of worship, he's isolated because for whatever reason may be, whether it be running from Saul or running from Absalom, in those two different occasions, uh, David was separated from people. He was scattered. And yet, it didn't stop him from praising God. He goes on to say, many will see it. In other words, they're going to see something different in David. They're going to see something in David that is distinct. And what they see in David, it may not necessarily be coming from his lip, but rather from his life. What they see in his life, they're going to know that God has acted. You know, perhaps the last time they saw David, he was down in the dumps. He was discouraged and despondent. But as God lifts him up out of that pit of destruction and sets his feet upon the rock, now his disposition is different. And they see that. And it bears witness to what God has done. And David says that when people see what God has done in his life, they will fear God. Literally, they will be in awe of God. They will look beyond David to the Lord, and they too will trust in the Lord. You know, sometimes we're so busy having people look at us that they never see the Lord. We need to make sure that when people see us or hear us praising God, that it it's God that's getting the attention. That we're getting out of the way so that they only see God. The word for trust means they will find security. As you find security, share what God has done so others may find the same security. Now, verses 4 to 5, we have an appreciation of devotion. An appreciation of devotion in verses 4 to 5. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. 
You know, the last part of that verse reminds us of what the Apostle John said at the end of his gospel. If we were to record all the things which Christ had done during his ministry, all the books in all the world could not contain them. Probably picked up that same thought here from Psalm uh, and uh, what David says. If I could declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Is that true in your life? Can you say that the blessings of God are so many, so numerous in your life that you've lost count? You see, David now gives content of his witness, or excuse me, the content of his witness. He proclaims that God is trustworthy and blesses those who trust him. Here, the word blessed here, how blessed is the man uh, who makes the Lord his trust. Literally, how rewarded is the man who made the Lord his trust. You know, the proud are those who stand against God. If you stand against God, you are not going to be rewarded. And you say, well, how do I know if I'm, if, if, I'm not, if I'm not trusting God? Well, who are you trusting in? If you're trusting in yourself, you got a pride problem. If you think you can solve your problem, you got a pride problem. If you think that, hey, I can fix this, you got a pride problem. Anytime you have yourself in the driver's seat, you're not trusting God. And let me tell you, you're going to be unhappy. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, 1 Peter 5, 5. It says that those who are proud turn aside to lies. Literally, they turn aside from the Lord and embrace illusions, idols, and ultimately Satan, the father of all lies. But the blessed person, the happy person, the person who is rewarded by God, will join in praise. Here the con content of David's praise focuses on God's works and God's words or thoughts. Those wonderful works in verse 5 literally are his supernatural, his extraordinary works. It's he's, he's referring to God's direct interventions in human history. He's not talking about outward displays that we see in nature. He's talking about how God has intimately, directly intervened in human history. And so he's praising God for the manifestation of his power, which evoked, goes back to the first set of verses, which evokes the new song. David also praises God not only for his works, but for his words, his thoughts towards us. You know, when we think about God's thoughts or God's words, Isaiah 55 verse 9 says, The heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts, God's words are vast and infinite. And we, but we have to remember this, they're towards us. Even though you and I cannot fully understand his thoughts, even though we, we can't wrap our minds around everything that God says, understand this. The very thing or person that is driving God's thoughts is you and I, believer. His thoughts towards us. When God reveals himself, he doesn't reveal himself to the animals or to nature or even to the angels. He reveals himself to us. When he speaks, he's not speaking to nature or animals. He's speaking to us. And when his spirit searches his depths, he makes them known to us. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13. God's mighty works and his awesome word go together. And they speak to us. And they ought to cause us to be devoted to Him. More reason 
for why we ought to be praising God. Again, He can take us out of that miry pit. He can set our feet upon the, the rock and, and establish them or make them firm because He says He'll do it. He'll declare it. If God says it, He'll do it. And we don't have to worry that God can't do it because we see here His works are extraordinary. There is no pit, believer, that you are in that God cannot extricate you out of. Verses 6 through 10. We have an avow of dedication. An avow of dedication. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. Now David contrasts true worship with false worship. As David is being lifted up out of that miry clay, as his feet are being established upon that rock, David understands that his worship got to change. He talks about the sacrifice and the meal offering. These would be the animals that were given to Yahweh, consumed by fire on the altar. The sin offering as, an, uh, as a sacrifice uh, to cover sin. And David says here that none of these offerings are desired by God. Instead, he says he's opened David's ears to understand. What he does desire, what God is looking for, is someone who delights to do his will, whose law is written upon his heart. Now, this is not an attack upon the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, I understand that many modern interpreters have taken these verses out of their context. But it is very doubtful that this was David's intention. Remember, David is the one who wanted to build the temple. David was leading the people in the worship of God. And, and David at no time uh, ever instructed or taught the people to stop bringing their sacrifices. Uh, in fact, he wanted the people to come to Jerusalem and he wanted them to bring their sacrifices uh, to where the place where God was dwelling on earth. Now, certainly... When we talk about these sacrifices, if we can just take a brief moment here, we need to understand that the, uh, the sacrifice for sin uh, is no longer required because Christ, the perfect lamb, has done that once for all time. Okay? So when, Dave, or excuse me, when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood as the Passover lamb, he was also looking forward as the uh, um, sacrificial lamb and goat of the atonement. And therefore, uh, he carried away our sins and his uh, uh, blood makes atonement. And it's a once-for-all sacrifice. Okay? It does not need to be repeated, redone, anything of that nature. And again, that goes back to the perfection of Christ. Now... What about the other offerings of the Old Testament? Well, uh, we know that in the Millennial Kingdom and beyond, Zechariah and Ezekiel are very clear that those offerings are going to resume. 
okay? They're going to resume, and they're going to be ceremonial, or they're going to be symbolic, uh, much in the way that uh, communion is symbolic. Obviously, when we partake of the cup and the bread, we are not re-sacrificing Christ. They are symbols of his death and, uh, uh, and shed blood. And so, in the Millennial Kingdom and beyond, uh, those other offerings that are uh, issued in the Old Testament will resume and be done in the same aspect as communion. Okay? Uh, now, they cannot be done today. They cannot be done today because we need two things. We need a, a, a Levitical priesthood, and B, a temple in Jerusalem. Neither of those things exist right now. But, in the Millennial Kingdom, Christ is going to rebuild the temple, and he is going to restore the Levitical priesthood. And when he does, those can resume. As we saw in our study of Romans, or excuse me, of 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10, there are still sacrifices that, in the spirit of those Old Testament sacrifices, sacrifices that believers should be making today, whether it's of their life or with their lips in praise to God, or in their ability to give and do good to others, are sacrifices that God certainly requires of us. Uh, but at this time, uh, David is not, and uh, nor is God, uh, denying these sacrifices. So then, what is the situation here? What is exactly being said? Well, verse 9 continues with the assertion that he has witnessed to God in the great congregation. And the phrase great congregation there is an Old Testament reference or Hebrew reference for the festival gatherings of Israel. So, again, we, we have him saying here, back in uh, between verses 6 and 8, uh, that, you know, God's not interested in these burnt offerings and sacrifices, but yet at the same time, uh, the children of Israel are still gathering together for these festival gatherings to make these offerings, okay? So what is it? Well, the issue is this, that God is not interested in our sacrifices, whether they're animal, grain, meat, sacrifices, or a sacrifice of our lip, life, and service, if our heart is not right with God. See, he, David's saying here that our attitudes and actions have to be right with God before we can make a sacrifice. It was true then, and it's still true today. Listen, if you're out there and you're giving praise to God, but you're doing it so you can be seen of men, guess what? You've got your reward. And God isn't interested in that sacrifice because your attitude and your action wasn't right. He's expecting our sacrifices to come out of a heart that delights to do His will, not simply go through the motions. If you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm giving this to this person and I'm doing this for that person. Again, if you're doing that to be patted on the back and say, wow, you're a swell guy or you're a great gal, I got news for you. You have your reward. Your heart attitude was wrong. Your actions were wrong. And God wasn't interested in it. It really wasn't a sacrifice. So we've got to constantly check those motivations. Okay. That's why he rebukes Israel later through Isaiah. Uh, he says, listen, you're giving me all these sacrifices, but your hands are full of blood. You, you know, you're all guilty of murder. So well, who did the Israelites murder? Nobody. Well, then how could God accuse them of that? Because they had hatred in their heart to their neighbors. And Scripture is clear that if you hate someone, 
you've murdered them in your heart. Their hearts weren't right. Now, verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. Now, what would be written of David in some scroll that would determine his coming? Again, scholars, quote-unquote, puzzle over this verse, but the author of Hebrews is very clear what it means. It means, Hebrews 10, verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Why? Because, behold, I come, is the Messiah. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. That's the Old Testament, including the book of Psalms. It's written of Christ. So this is prophetic. He's the one that's going to come and do the will of God. He's going to offer himself for sin. He's going to fulfill that system. And so verse 7, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks of Christ. And that pours ultimate meaning back in verses 5 through 8. God does desire a sacrifice, sacrifices from the heart. While all sacrifices are limited, the ultimate sacrifice that sets an example for you and I of how to give a sacrifice to God is that of his son, Jesus Christ. In verse 10, David again repeats the thesis of verse 9, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. He's talking about God's faithfulness, His truthfulness, His salvation, His deliverance, His loving kindness, His covenant love, all of these attributes. He says, I've not hidden them, I've declared them. I've put them out there. Literally, he says, I'm, I'm a preaching the good news of Christ's righteousness. Finally, verses 11 to 17, we have an appeal for deliverance. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let all those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified, since I am afflicted and needy. Let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. The only answer is for God to move upon David in mercy. David needed a second touch, if you will, from the Lord. You know, we're all sinners who need that second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth touch. We need that, we need that continual cleansing and healing from our sin. We need deliverance from our enemies. We need deliverance from those who taunt us and, uh, and who seek to destroy us. But David prays as he closes that all who seek him would find joy. The verb seek here means to inquire of the Lord, to ask of him. You know, since God will answer, we can rejoice and be glad. David wants this joy. And that's why he confesses here that he is poor and needy. But he's certain, he's confident that Yahweh still thinks upon him. And so he prays, God, act quickly. Be my help, be my deliverer. And the God who brought him out of that miry clay would do it again and set his feet on the rock. As Jesus says in Mark 2.17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's make sure we're always on the, on, on the bed of repentance. You know, often like David, we feel stuck in life. Perhaps it's our past Perhaps it's our circumstances, perhaps it's our sin, or even our enemies. 
My friend, God wants you to be free. He's ready and now to pull you up out of that clay and plant you as a rock, uh, uh, and plant you firmly upon the rock of His Son, Jesus Christ. What you need to do is wait patiently and cry out to Him, and He'll do the rest. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for that precious promise that you gave David and that you give to us, that, Lord, you hear us and you'll help us. That, Father, when we find ourselves in that miry clay, in that pit of destruction, Father, you will come down and lift us up, clean us off, and set us upon that rock. And I thank you for that. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, Father. Thank you for deliverance from sin. Thank you for delivering us from our past, our circumstances, and even our enemies. And may our life and lips declare you in all ways and in all things. In your Son's name, amen.